This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Thank you for tuning in. We got a great one for you today. We got my friend, Jaspreet Baveja, coming here to talk to us about becoming a financially independent, leaving his W-2 job by investing in real estate. He's teaching us about the strategies that he uses, which includes private lending, syndication investing, and flips. He's teaching us about how he got to where he is, mistakes that he made along the way, keys to his current investment strategy, and the things that he finds the most important to succeeding at his current investment strategies. These are very important lessons, and I believe it's important that we take these lessons from people who have been where we want to get to. So if you're somebody who you want to work on, you want to leave your W-2 job by investing in real estate, then learn from lessons, learn from guys like Jaspreet who have done exactly that. And you know these lessons are great. Jaspreet's a, an amazing guy, great guy to talk to, filled with lessons and very happy to be bringing this interview to you today. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor. I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate, specifically multifamily apartments with passive investors, and we split the return. I love talking about real estate investing and what it can do for us in meeting our financial goals. And this interview today is certainly no exception. Jaspreet's a great guy to talk to. He's filled with knowledge and experience, and he has accomplished amazing things. And once again, I'm, I'm very happy to, to have this one for you today. Without any further ado, here we go with Jaspreet Baveja. Jaspreet, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, man. It's a pleasure. I'm happy to talk with you once again after we met on Bigger Pockets and we talked and I learned about your story. I just thought it'd be, it'd be great to share and learn more along with our listeners about what you do and, and where you've, how you've gotten to where you are. Uh, yeah. For everybody out there that doesn't know, about Jaspreet and your financial independence. Tell us about it. Tell us about your story. Well, I, uh, I was just a W-2 employee, regular job, and I was doing healthcare regulatory compliance consulting. So exciting, amazing work, <laughs> you know, and really made me get up in the morning and go, wow, I really love my job. And, and, and you know, it just... I was doing the grind and a couple of my friends introduced me to real estate investing back in 17 and said, you know, this is something you should get into is, is create cash flow and start generating some monthly income where you don't have to rely on your W-2. And there's this thing called financial independence. None of those things were, I mean, this, this was all net new to me then. It was just, you know, the Indian household, get, grow up, be an engineer or a doctor, have a great job, succeed in life, do great and keep moving on and, you know, buy your home, make sure you have a big home, da, 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 da. So I was doing all that. We had a huge 3,000 square foot home, beautiful home in, in Northern California. Great job. My wife has a great job. Two young kids and we were just living life. And, and so real estate investing was a whole new concept. Got into it with duplexes, went from one duplex to four duplex within six months to just ramp it up all cash and just said, all right, let's just do this. You know, generate as much money as we can every month. And didn't do so well, uh, you know, all C-class duplexes and, <laughs> and the whole dream that you get sold doesn't actually come to fruition and you realize, you know, property management, uh, while they take over all the headaches, 
they still come down to you. They may take the call at two in the morning, but you still have to pick up the phone at 9 a.m. your time and answer those questions and approve those rehabs or toilet replacements and all that stuff. So it still comes down to you at the end. And so got, got through all that and then said, all right, I'm done. We sold all those off as ended up being flips, still ended up making money on those. So it was not a bad idea, but uh, turned those into flips, did a flip in Austin in the meantime. And the best thing we did was sell our home. So in Northern California, I went over to a rental and we've been renting since 2018, uh, March, 2018. And it was definitely been bliss since then. And it's really helped a lot in a lot of ways, just huge, huge. And, and I think, you know, as we grew into that 2018, I started getting into private lending. It was just another one of those things that fell into my lap. Somebody said, Hey, you know, uh, I see you're investing in this area. I invest in that area too. Would you be interested in doing a loan for me instead? And went through the, the, the process and got to understand what is private lending? What all do I need to be making sure I can do to make sure my investment is secure? And is it against a property? What are the rates? What are the fees, points? documents, title documents and notes, mortgages, deeds, like a recording, all this stuff that you just as a buyer or a borrower, you just go assign documents and off you go. But as the lender who is the responsible for generating those documents and making sure your investment is secure, that's when it comes to play. So, you know, learned all that and did the loan and snowballed again. It's more like a very quick ramp up for me. So I went from one loan to six loans within four months and yeah, it's just, for me, it's all about learning the process. And once that process is down, then it's just a lot easier to scale and grow. And I think it's true for a lot of people in a lot of different ways, but you know, it's just the hesitation, getting past that initial fear. And once I do that, then I'm, then I'm good to go. So, you know, the private lending started and as I kept going, did a couple more flips, intentional flips in Austin and in Indy. And I said, all right, well, let's, this is not bad. I can do this, but I was managing a full-time job. I had become a limited partner by then in six indications. I, and so I like actually, you know, like engaging and researching this indicator and the properties and the assets and the locations and the deal and reading the memorandum. So doing all that research, so it takes time mm-hmm. with a full-time job, two young kids and, and, and the desire and the need to travel all the time and doing the flips in two different states and, doing the private lending. So like having all these five or six different full-time jobs was just getting too much. And I said, which is the one thing that I'm hating the most out of all of it? And it by far was the W2 job. And I said, mm. all right, well, gotta go, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so May, 2019, I said, all right, off you go. And my goal at the time, I think from the day my wife and I discussed it till the day I gave my notice was probably 72 hours. Wow. On a Friday evening, I said, honey, I think I'm done. And she said, all right, let's make it happen. And over the weekend, we went through every financial statement, everything for 24 months, did all the research, figured out, can we survive on one income? And we had already, like I said, we were already renting. So that was a fixed cost. There was no additional headaches, right? Nothing pops up in a rental. You just call the property manager or the landlord and boom, you're done. So, you know, to, to make it easy, we, we did all that stuff and calculated that, yeah, we can make it happen. So Monday morning, I had the letter, email, everything signed up, took it to the, and said, all right, I'm done. So it was, it was a quick decision, but it's just a lot of planning again, you know. 
Wow. So that, I mean, it takes a lot of bravery and I appreciate that once you have a process, you're just going to make these things happen. And I, I wanted to make sure we call out a few things that you live in California, but you had started investing um, out of your area and yes. you said you did a, a flip in Austin. Where else were you investing? Indianapolis was my primary hub. It is my primary hub still where I invest out of state. And yeah, uh, the syndications that I'm a part of have invested in Ohio, Colorado, Texas, California. Uh, so I'm all over the place. But yeah, it's just, you know, it's again, it's all about as long as you do your research and, and you're prepared the location won't matter as much as long as this, the metrics around that location make sense for what you want out of your investments. You know, a flipping market versus a wholesaling market versus a buy and hold market can all be different markets. So it's just as long as you pick what you're after, then and then you find the market that fits that criteria, it becomes easy. Oh, and, and let's not discount building a team. That's <laughs> that is one one very painful key point that you cannot miss out on is building the right team. So how do you do that from a, a long distance and you don't know these people? Like how do you go find them and, and vet them and get them on the team and get them interested in being on the team? Like what is your process? You're the process man. Well, I think for, for syndications, I tried to leverage a platform. So I did very first syndication I took a part of and was actually a coworker of mine at my job said, hey, I heard you're into real estate and a friend of mine does syndications and we're doing a property just down the street from us. So you can drive to it if you wanted to, and you know, you can take a look at it, but here's the stuff. If you're interested, take a look and there's no minimum investment amount. You know, they have it where you can get in at a low dollar amount and all that stuff. And I said, okay, well, sounds good. So I took a look at it and said, all right, I assessed the property, met the syndicator, did some research on where, you know, what companies he'd been a part of and what deals they did. And, and so put that money in, but then I went over to CrowdStreet where it's a little bit more of a, you know, they do the, a little bit more of the upfront work on vetting the syndicators and the, the teams that come to the platform. So it becomes a little bit easier, but it's still a very heavy intensive process on doing the research on that individual members of the team. And, you know, sometimes I found stuff about particular members of a team that, you know, CrowdStreet vetted and said, yeah, everything is good. But then you do the research yourself and go, I don't think so. And, and I've gotten emails from CrowdStreet saying, hey, we're sorry we allowed this, you know, syndicator to, to get onto the platform and well, this deal is no longer available. And I said, yep, I know exactly why, because I did my own research too. So it's just, you, you trust what you verify no matter what. And so my syndications after that have been a little bit more CrowdStreet based and one or two more networking based where, you know, you have somebody who's vouching for them and they've done deals and you know people who've invested with them before and they, they can vouch for them. So it's a, lot of, a little bit easier that way. As far as ground team for doing flips or buying holes and things of that nature, that's a little bit more intensive around getting a lot of research done where you're talking to people on bigger pockets, where you're talking to people who invest in Indianapolis or Austin or wherever you want to invest and, you know, friends or people at meetups, people in your RIAs that are doing out of state investing. You talk to them, who have you used? What was your, you know, what was your experience? Is the property management team good? Is this guy who does HVAC, is he really that good? Is this electrician really that good? Because no matter what your GC can do, sometimes they just hit a snag and go, 
yeah, you know, I can do everything plumbing, but not replace the whole house plumbing. <laughs> okay, well, now I've got to go find in somebody else who can do that, right? So it just, you, you, it's all about talking to people and real estate, no matter what you do, whether it's lending or syndications or flips or buying holds, it's all about relationships. And I've heard it before and I'll say it again, no matter what you do in real estate, networking and, and relationship building and maintaining that relationship is super key. So that's what I rely on the most is, is leveraging our relationships with fellow investors and then trying out with smaller jobs and then giving them more responsibilities and then putting them onto the team. I can definitely say you're, from my perspective, you're definitely consistent with that message because that's what you said uh, the last time that we talked when not recording, the right. message of the team being so key and then the people and the network just being so important. Yeah. And um, you know, there, there's a lot in here. There's a lot of lessons that I, I want to learn here. And unfortunately, we're not going to get to all of them today. <laughs> right, no. But you know, we went through a few topics there. You mentioned first syndicators that um, like a CrowdStreet or, or you know, platform to make it more general had vetted mm -hmm. and had not found things that you ended up finding. What's your process for, for going and finding those things? We don't need to get into like specifics of this guy, Mike, did this one thing, but oh, no. what do you look for, you know? It's, you can find so much on Google these days. I've never, <laughs> yet, I've never yet had to pay for a private investigator to investigate these syndicators and their, their managers or their operators, as you call them, right? It's never needed to get to that point where I can just type into Google and, and go through LinkedIn and see, okay, where were they working before? All right, well, let's, let's try that, track that in. Okay, well, they at this job. Or, okay, how did that work out? You know, sometimes or the other, you'll find either a litigation out there, active litigation, either with the company, if you don't find them with their name, maybe you find it with the previous employer and you dig into it and say, oh, well, he wasn't named in the actual header, but here's his name as part of this thing. And it's, it's been, I've had that happen with borrowers who, whose companies are, oh, yeah, this is a brand new company created two years ago, doing great, don't worry about it, everything's fine. And then you look back, you know, like three other companies that they had in the past and seven years ago, they were part of, or they had created this company where in a different state altogether. And you do the research and you find all of a sudden, yep, there's active litigation still out there, pending litigation and lawsuits and uh, things of the, you know, oh, they got involved with the city and, and there's a fine that was outstanding that they never addressed or permits that were never issued. It's just small things that speak to the character of the individual and how they're trying to hide behind the name of the company change or, you know, their company was based in Nevada and now it's based in Delaware and all of a sudden everything's fine and dandy and nobody really cares, right? So it's just, it's individual names of the operators that are involved in the key managing of your syndication. That's what I research. And Google is your best friend. Just try to, I've, I've been a king at Google for, for too long, like just <laughs> researching things. This is from when I was back in college days, just finding stuff. So just leveraging that experience to, to make sure that our investments are safe and secure as best as possible. Mm, it's, and it's very smart to do, do that work up front. Now, another thing yeah. that I wanted to make sure we touch on as well is private lending. You know, we get a lot of uh, questions generally, especially on bigger pockets, you know, people who live in California or some of these other more expensive areas and less landlord friendly areas trying to invest out of state. Maybe they're not comfortable with syndications. Maybe they are, but they also want to learn 
about lending and you know when you tell us about your process i mean it's obviously it's complicated but you know tell us how it works for you well as i said the very first deal i was able to leverage my borrowers network again key network mm. to get in touch with with lenders with title companies that they had done business with before and i was able to speak to them okay well if this person or this company you know gets into loans do they pay them off on time do you see a lot of have you ever seen a default come through on on their company name uh talking to a lawyer about okay well what are the state specific regulations that we can leverage or laws that we can leverage and you can say like okay well hey in this state i can just put the statement in here that says if they miss a payment and 30 days later they haven't yet paid i automatically get title yep. whereas in california good luck you know you can sit there <laughs> for six months fighting litigation <laughs> And filing, you know, documents and suits and whatever else, writs and defaults and whatever else you will need to get that property in your name. So it's very state specific how lending will work, or at least how you're securitizing your investment and what your recourses are and how long those recourses will take to implement and get your money back. So that's, that's a very key piece that you need to look at is what state you're investing in, lending in. And when you are securitizing your collaterals, so you're doing a deed, a mortgage, a trust, whatever, whatever instruments you put into place, what particular piece of language can you include to reduce the number of amount of stress that you have on yourself in case of default? So to give yourself um, a lot of options that are, or, or maybe one key option, uh, like the example you gave that limits your downside, for example. Exactly. Your exposure. Yep, exactly that. And how how about you know doing due diligence at these properties in Indianapolis, for example? You know, mm -hmm. I assume you're not jumping on a plane for every single one of them. Do you have somebody go and do a, a broker's price opinion or do an inspection, or what's your uh, physical due diligence look like? So for a majority of the deals, if they're a repeat borrower, and a, pretty much everyone that I have on my list is a repeat borrower now, I'm not adding anyone new at the time, but it's once you have built a rapport, it becomes easier, but I will make sure that I get as is current videos, current photos of the, pro, of the property and certain documentation around the property from the MLS, from title, from anyone else and put all that together and then give it to a, an unbiased third party broker and say, Hey, here's everything that you need. Leverage this and whatever else you need, whether it's to drive by exterior, you know, uh, inspection or whatever it takes to get me a valid BPO of the property. And so far I have yet to find a single deal that I've invested in where the BPO wasn't significantly higher than the loan amount that I was providing. And so I would say my average loan to value is somewhere around 50%. That's, but my, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, but my average loan to purchase has been as high as 95%, but I'm still barely touching 50% of loan to value. It's just that's how much equity the deal has when they approach me with these transactions that I feel super comfortable saying, yeah, no problem. You'll, you'll put in $5,000 and I'll be worth you know, 20 more. So we're, we're fine. Don't worry about it. 
we can do this. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, all those things that you said are super important. You know, you have to have somebody on the ground who knows the market well enough to give you a broker pricing opinion based on videos and photos and a physical inspection if you need it. Uh, you can always rely on an appraiser and actually pay for an inspection and pay for an appraisal and put those investments in. But I think it all depends on the dollar amount, right? Like if I'm doing a $17,000 loan on a $20,000 purchase where the property is worth 50, it doesn't make sense for me to spend $600 upfront in an appraisal and an inspection because the rate of return or the dollar amount that I'm going to make on that deal may not be high enough to even cover all that. But I know it's going to be a quick transaction. The money goes in, quickly comes back out. You, you made money on your fees and points, whatever, however you structure the deal and you keep doing it over and over again. So at the end, your rate of return is pretty good at the end of the year, but the transaction may not create as much money. And it's just more of building the relationship, making sure that the deals keep taking place and, and you're helping them get their business going and you're helping yourself keep your money deployed, but you are doing it sensibly in a deal that makes sense and there's enough value, enough equity in the deal. And, and that's just the way I progress, you know. Limits your downside, yeah. So one of the things, you know, I talk to a lot of folks who have achieved you know, financial independence by investing in real estate. And many of them, I'm not putting this on you, many of them don't want to admit when they make mistakes. And I want to ask you, just Spreet, what are some mistakes that you've made along the way? Uh, placing too much trust in a referral or in their claimed background and, and their claimed abilities of being able to deliver. This was definitely the flip I did in Austin. <laughs> I think I lost tens of thousands of dollars on that deal Ooh. over an 11 month ordeal of the GC firing their subcontractors three times around, asking for more money, trying to find a different GC to take over, but it was going to cost more money and continue to just have faith and have trust and say, all right, I think this guy can turn it around. I think this guy can turn it around. And it eventually sold for the dollar amount that I wanted, just the amount of money it took to get to that point ended up being a lot more than originally planned. So I think, you know, with your first deal out of state, I think a lower dollar amount, and it all depends on someone, right? Somebody, for somebody, a million dollar deal could be a low dollar amount, whereas for somebody, a $17,000 deal could be a low dollar amount, right? I think so, so proportionate to how much you have to invest, I would say if you're gonna go do something net new, be more conservative, be more hands-on, fly out there five times if you need to, but keep a closer eye on things if it's an active investment like a flip. And if it's even if it's a passive one, make sure you have more phone calls with your property manager. Or if it's a syndication, make sure you have more touch-ins with the operator. And so it's just try to be more actively involved and definitely focus more on that verification part than the trusting part and the leveraging the network. So it's just, you, you, you can get access to people that way in the network and their relationships, but sometimes situations just change for them. They may have delivered 17 times for these other people, but now all of a sudden their subcontractor got sick and is no longer working and they're, they're farming it out to different people. And all of a sudden you get stuck with the holding the short end of the stick, right? So it's just, I think being more actively engaged in whatever type of investment you do to ensure that you get the results that you're after is definitely the lesson that I learned from that mistake. 
Interesting. So I'm, I'm curious because you, you, you have your, you have your hand, your investments in a variety of strategies. If you were in a situation where you were decided you wanted to keep your day job, that was not the thing that you were going to get rid of. There was something mm -hmm. else you're going to get going to get rid of. What investment strategy do you think you would still be able to pursue? Because you, you just classified flips as active and then I think implied some of your other investments were less active, maybe passive. So right. if you were still working, still wanted the W2 for whatever reason you uh, right. so chose, <laughs> what would you still be able to invest in? Or, or what are your thoughts? What would you, your recommendations be to somebody in that situation? I think my private lending is definitely the one thing by far that I would recommend to anyone as, as a key, easy enough to operate in as a passive investment. Right now, I am spending on average maybe eight hours a week in my lending business. And I'm generating, I have been able to surpass my W-2 income in less than a year. Dang. So that's one thing that I could have easily continued to do even with a W-2, I just chose not to and, and, and focus more on my kids and family. But I think going forward, you know, if my, my goal is to get into syndications and doing a GP side of syndications and getting into larger deals, you know, 10, 20, $30 million transactions, doing a lot of this pooling money together, going after an asset and generating monthly cash flow from these multifamily assets and doing all that. But, People who want to get into a passive, the second best thing I think strategy is definitely investing money with a syndicator operator that has done a few deals or has enough analysis and, and documentation to prove that they've done their due diligence, that they have a deal that makes sense. You can vet, you can get third party people to agree that, yep, that makes sense. And go into that, I think that's definitely the next best thing that you can easily do with a W-2 job is, is invest with a syndicator. So um, when we were talking before we were recording, um, I recall there was a, a syndication investment that didn't quite go uh, the way you had expected. <laughs> I wonder if we could talk about that while we're here. Oh, man. Southern California marijuana extraction facility. Sounds like a lot of fun, right? Yeah. I, I figured, hey, you know, this is right around 2019. Everything's going to go great. It's just going to get legalized. There's going to be a lot of demand, a lot of people out there. I mean, CVS and Walmart is going to have drinks that have it. And, you know, it's just, there's a lot of demand for these things. As soon as they get, you know, consumerized, like everything is becoming all about the consumers. As soon as that consumer base grows to anybody who can walk into a CVS versus needing to have a card and walking into a sp specific dispensary and all that stuff, right? You're, you're going to see a demand increase. And I figured, all right, well, let's, let's get into that. And they were, they were expecting conservatively a hundred percent cash on cash return a year within the first year. And I said, all right, well, even if they can do 10, I'll be happy. <laughs> let's just, it's okay. Let's put some money in. And I think since then, since 2019, I have received one payment and that was as a cash in an envelope, certified no less that I had to go to the freaking post office to go pick up, but it was cash, an envelope, and that's it. And it was just around the, the county decided that they are not, they're not going to allow cannabis investments in that county. So they had this huge warehouse and distill it, you know, 
manufacturing facility. So they had all these machinery and all this equipment and all this stuff that was being done to make sure everything is legit. And all of a sudden, the everything had to be shut down. So they had to move operations to somewhere else. Well, that all took money and time. And they lose a lot of contracts in that time frame. And they said, okay, well, we're not doing this anymore. And they're going to sell the business. And for the last seven months, I think I've been hearing, we're selling the business. We're selling the business. You're going to get your money back. Okay. At some point, it's going to come back to me. At the bare minimum, I'm hopeful that we'll get our principal back. But they're claiming they're going to give us 8% return. So I think that's, I mean, it's still better than zero, but not anywhere near the 100% they were claiming they'd be able to generate. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and I, I definitely can appreciate the the temptation there from uh, absolutely exactly everything you were saying, the perspective of, hey, it's going to be legalized. There's a huge demand for this stuff. Like this is, you know, check, 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 check. We're, we're very happy with, you know, the prospects here. Exactly. But, you know, if we're, again, trying to pull lessons out of the past and, and decisions that were made, what would you do differently? What do you think was the mistake there, uh, you know, in hindsight? I don't know, man. I think, you know, sometimes things like the county, there's no way anybody could have predicted the county all of a right. sudden saying, sorry, you're going to have to vacate the premises because we're not allowing and we're not issuing any more licenses. We're not going to legalize it here or we're not going to let you operate this business here. You can sell it all you want. We're not going to set up distillate shops. Right. So there's, there's really not much you could have possibly done in that, in that particular scenario to protect your investment. But, you know, because we vetted the people, we vetted the team, they had done this elsewhere and, and they had done it successfully and they'd been in this business for a decade or more as, as uh, consultants for other businesses to get this going and, and for the legal stuff that was there at the time. So, you know, there was, there was a lot writing on and a lot behind them to say, yep, they're going to succeed. And a lot of speculation around market growth and production and demand and all that. So I don't think that there's much I could have done differently, but sticking to what you know, maybe perhaps is the only thing that comes out of it, right? Like I know real estate better than I know marijuana businesses. It's not a physical asset that I'm lending against. It's not a physical asset that's going to generate monthly cash flow where people have to live every day and pay you monthly income. It's not a single family home. So I think that was the key differentiator is the asset class, right? It's something that is a business that you're investing in versus a physical real estate asset that you're investing in that can retain value no matter what, almost, almost. So you think uh, sticking to what you know, does, does, does FOMO ring, you know, true to you at all? <laughs> Do you think you felt that maybe? I don't know. I'm not, I'm try, not trying to come no, no, down I think on you. It, like one of my best friends uh, approached me with that deal and said, I've done this research. I, I've talked to another one of my good friends is doing it. He's been involved with the team. So it was, it was not just something that appeared out of nowhere and somebody that I found on my own. It yeah. was somebody that brought me, and this is a friend of mine that I've known for a decade plus, 15 years. And, you know, he said, I've done the research. It makes sense. The team is good. Let's do the, our own research. And then we did our own due diligence. And it was more that, Yes, there was a little bit of FOMO for sure as to, well, if there's an opportunity to get into something which we know for a fact is going to happen, it wasn't speculation that it was going to get legalized. It was fact that it was going to happen, right? The regulations had already come out. It was just going to happen. It was just timeline. 
and you're able to get into it with a company that has access to farms that had access to contracts for resale and had access to a warehouse for volume so they had a well-established name it's just you know it, you can't you can't ever guess what a city or a county or, or governments are going to do, right? Now they're telling you reduce rents by 25%. No, you can't throw anyone out of your house. No, you can't evict anyone. I mean, even utility companies are telling us, you know, we can't, we can't shut down power because you haven't paid your bills. So this massive shift in what things that are not in your control or the operator's controls that can change the, the investment and the return, you can't really account for that too much. But I thought I did by saying, okay, well, they're expecting 100. As long as I get 10, I'm happy, right? That was a 90% reduction in my return rate. I figured was a good enough buffer. <laughs> but sometimes it's just, you know, it is what it is. Like anybody will ever tell you, all investments are risky, no matter what you do. And you just have to gauge that risk for yourself and put into play any mediation tactics that you can and that's why my first and foremost answer is always private lending, because I know I can put a lien against the property. I can get, you know, things get recorded at the county level where my name will show up as the lender. Or I'll have insurance, title insurance, property insurance, whatever the case may be. It's just there are so many different layers of protection you can put towards sort of securing your investment in your asset that it becomes a lot easier to have an ease of mind, peace of mind. And, and not have to worry about it constantly every day going, oh my God, what's going to happen to the property? Are they going to pay? What am I going to do if they don't pay? And if they just generate the return that I wanted, so. Or is my contractor going to walk from the job or, you know, any of these things that you yeah. mentioned earlier? Yeah. That's, that's great. I really appreciate that. We'll have to turn that into a, into a sound bite. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, just breathe. I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. As you know, are you ready? Yes, sir. All right. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Man, I'm going to go against the norm here and say my single family home primary residence that we bought in Northern California was the best investment. Because it allowed us to get a massive amount of appreciation. I put it as a rental for two years before I sold it. And even after then, when we sold it, Everything had gone up and all that appreciation was tax-free because up to half a million for a married couple in a primary residence that you've lived in for at least two out of the last five years is tax-free. So that was a huge boost in dollar amount to my war chest. And that's what I was talking about that, you know, it just allowed me to explore other avenues of investments because the moment we sold that and said, oh, wow, that's amazing. We you know, even if we had it on rent for two years, it didn't make a difference because two out of the last five were still us living there. And so that appreciation gain was tax-free and it gave me huge amount of uh, boost. So it just, that to me was luckily enough, the best investment that I think we've ever made so far. Nice. Nice. I love it. Huge tax advantage there too. So really cashing in on that appreciation. On the other side of that, we had the best investment, now the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? I think that flip in Austin was definitely the most amount of money I've lost in a deal, the most amount of headache I had and dragged out the longest. So yeah, even though this marijuana thing may not work out, at least I'm not actively involved in the daily phone calls and 
Lowe's and Costco and Home Depot and order this for me and pay for that and make sure it's here. And, you know, that active engagement of when it results in a loss is a far worse feeling than when it's a passive investment and you've given your control to someone else and you knew going in that, okay, I'm not actively engaged. I'm going to trust someone else with my investment and, and what it does, fine. You still feel bad, but when you, when you take it on yourself and you still ends up not doing as well, then it hurt the most. Yeah. There's a lot less psychic mental cost. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> passive investments. Yep. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. That, that sounds like it was a very painful experience to go through the, the, the flip uh, losing money and, and dealing with the contractors and being on the calls. I just, I feel myself in your situation and I would just be like, ah, I would be so frustrated. Ruin my, ruin my day. Yeah. And I'm, I'm in the process of selling a flip this week that will, that will more than make up for that one flip. So there are ways of recovering that investment, right? You shouldn't let that one failure or the very first deal that goes bad deter you from continuing to progress towards your dream of financial independence if that's what you want, right? You just have to find ways of securing your assets, securing your investments, building a process, building a team, and, and just keep going. Don't, don't let one failure or one bad thing deter you from continuing to keep pursuing what, you're, what your dream is and what you're after. Yeah, I really appreciate that because there are so many people out there who are on the outside looking into real estate investing that say, you know, I'd love to be a real estate investor, but my cousin's great uncle's nephew owned a property once and then lost all his money or some, some right. story like that where something went bad and things go bad all, the, all around, exactly. but there's a lot of success out there to be had. Definitely. Yeah. Well, my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? Oh man, uh, trust but verify. That is that is by far, I think, the one most important thing is is trust. Whether it's a recommendation, whether it's someone you know who's bringing someone to you to invest with, through, for, on behalf of, whatever the case may be, right? I mean, you, it all depends on whether they want you to buy a house from this guy or they want you to put money in a syndication or, or lend him some money or, you know, whatever the case may be. It's, or use him as a contractor or her team for design or what. It's, it's just so many different, you know, networking things that happen. But I think verifying the track record is, is key. And on that end, right, even on my own website, I've created a resource page where I said, okay, if you ever want to verify that I have done these loans out of my business or my name, click this link. It goes to the county recorder's office. You, you can't fake that. Right? <laughs> a, and you type in my name and you will see every mortgage and mortgage deed, mortgage release and liens and everything that I've placed on all these assets, dollar amounts that I've invested. Right? So to that end, I'm an open book. If you ever want to check me out as a private lender or the deals that I've been able to help with, go to the site, click on the link, and boom, you can literally do that research on your own with a third-party government website that cannot lie, right? So I think those are the kinds of things, whether it's a license number you can validate or it's their entity information or the background of that specific person, uh, you know, their reviews online, you got thumbtacked all the way to, you know, actual legal documents where their names are saying this versus this guy has a lawsuit <laughs> you know the spectrum is insane depending on the level of investment you want to do mm -hmm. but i think the verification process to me is key 
in, in, in business and investing. I love it. And now if folks want to get in touch with you, you mentioned your website. Yeah. Where can they find you? JGBLLCRE.com is my website and just breathe at JGBLLCRE.com or my phone number. You can call me, text me, WhatsApp. Uh, everything works as 530-522-8352. And the cool way of remembering that is 530, my first initial of first name, J, and my last name, B-A-B-E-J-A, Baveja. Did you do that on purpose? You did. Over a decade ago when I had no intention <laughs> of investing, it was just a really cool thing that happened to work out. And I said, dude, I'm never giving that up. And yeah, it's, it's served me well. It's easy to remember. And uh, people can get in touch with me whichever way they want from on that. Well, nice. I definitely recommend uh, folks do that. It's been a fantastic time. Uh, both times we've had a conversation and you're on bigger pockets as well. I figured I'll mention yes, that. Yes, definitely, definitely. That's where we connected. Well, yep. I, I really appreciate you joining me today and joining our listeners and sharing these lessons because I think stories like yours are very inspiring and they are they are really what get others to put their foot in the pool of real estate investing and get started. So thank you for bringing that to us today. Yeah, no, man. Thanks for having me. It was amazing. It was a lot of fun. And I've really enjoyed both our conversations as well so far. So thank you. My great pleasure. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating interview on Apple Podcast. It's very helpful. It helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the fold. Thank you for tuning in. We'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.